Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Book 5, Chapter 20 of War and Peace, Volume 2 by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 5, Chapter 20 Rostov had come to Tilsit the day least suitable for a petition on Denisov's behalf. He could not himself go to the general in attendance, as he was in mufti, and had come to Tilsit without permission to do so, and Boris, even had he wished to, could not have done so on the following day. On that day, June 27th, the preliminaries of peace were signed. The emperors exchanged decorations. Alexander received the cross of the Legion of Honor and Napoleon the Order of St. Andrew of the First Degree, and a dinner had been arranged for the evening, given by a battalion of the French guards to the Preobrazhensk battalion. The emperors were to be present at that banquet. Rostov felt so ill at ease and uncomfortable with Boris that when the latter looked in after supper he pretended to be asleep, and early next morning went away, avoiding Boris. In his civilian clothes and a round hat, he wandered about the town, staring at the French and their uniforms and at the streets and houses where the Russian and French emperors were staying. In a square he saw tables being set up, and preparations made for the dinner. He saw the Russian and French colors draped from side to side of the streets, with huge monograms A and N. In the windows of the houses also flags and bunting were displayed. Boris doesn't want to help me, and I don't want to ask him. That's settled, thought Nicholas. All is over between us. But I won't leave here without having done all I can for Denisov, and certainly not without getting his letter to the Emperor. The Emperor! He is here, thought Rostov, who had unconsciously returned to the house where Alexander lodged. Saddled horses were standing before the house and the suite were assembling, evidently preparing for the emperor to come out. "'I may see him at any moment,' thought Rostov. "'If only I were to hand the letter direct to him and tell him all. Could they really arrest me for my civilian clothes? Surely not. He would understand on whose side justice lies. He understands everything, knows everything. Who can be more just, more magnanimous than he? And even if they did arrest me for being here, what would it matter?" thought he, looking at an officer who was entering the house the Emperor occupied. After all, people do go in. It's all nonsense. I'll go in and hand the letter to the Emperor myself, so much the worse for Drubetskoy who drives me to it. And suddenly, with a determination he himself did not expect, Rostov felt for the letter in his pocket and went straight to the house. No, I won't miss my opportunity now as I did after Austerlitz, he thought, expecting every moment to meet the monarch, and conscious of the blood that rushed to his heart at the thought. I will fall at his feet and beseech him. He will lift me up, will listen, 
and will even thank me. I am happy when I can do good, but to remedy injustice is the greatest happiness." Rostov fancied the sovereign saying, and passing people who looked after him with curiosity, he entered the porch of the Emperor's house. A broad staircase led straight up from the entry, and to the right he saw a closed door. Below, under the staircase, was a door leading to the lower floor. "'Whom do you want?' someone inquired. "'To hand in a letter, a petition, to His Majesty,' said Nicholas, with a tremor in his voice. "'A petition? This way, to the officer on duty.' He was shown the door leading downstairs. "'Only it won't be accepted.' On hearing this indifferent voice, Rostov grew frightened at what he was doing. The thought of meeting the Emperor at any moment was so fascinating and consequently so alarming that he was ready to run away, but the official who had questioned him opened the door and Rostov entered. A short stout man of about thirty, in white breeches and high boots and a batiste shirt that he had evidently only just put on, standing in that room, and his valet was buttoning on to the back of his breeches a new pair of handsome silk-embroidered braces, that for some reason attracted Rostov's attention. This man was speaking to someone in the adjoining room. "'A good figure, and in her first bloom,' he was saying. But on seeing Rostov he stopped short and frowned. "'What is it? A petition?' "'What is it?' asked the person in the other room. "'Another petitioner!' answered the man with the braces. "'Tell him to come later. He'll be coming out directly. We must go.' "'Later. Later. Tomorrow it's too late.' Rostov turned and was about to go, but the man in the braces stopped him. "'Whom have you come from? Who are you?' "'I come from Major Denisov,' answered Rostov. "'Are you an officer?' "'Lieutenant Count Rostov.' "'What audacity!' hand it in through your commander, and go along with you, go!" And he continued to put on the uniform the valet handed him. Rostov went back into the hall and noticed that in the porch there were many officers and generals in full parade uniform, whom he had to pass. Cursing his temerity, his heart sinking at the thought of finding himself at any moment face to face with the Emperor, and being put to shame and arrested in his presence, Fully alive now to the impropriety of his conduct and repenting of it, Rostov, with downcast eyes, was making his way out of the house through the brilliant suite, when a familiar voice called him and a hand detained him. "'What are you doing here, sir, in civilian dress?' asked a deep voice. It was a cavalry general who had obtained the Emperor's special favor during this campaign, and who had formerly commanded the division in which Rostov was serving. Rostov, in dismay, began justifying himself, but seeing the kindly, jocular face of the general, he took him aside and in an excited voice told him the whole affair, asking him to intercede for Denisov, whom the general knew. Having heard Rostov to the end, the general shook his head gravely. "'I'm sorry, sorry for that fine fellow. Give me the letter.' Hardly had Rostov handed him the letter and finished explaining Denisov's case, when hasty steps and the jingling of spurs were heard on the stairs, and the general, leaving him, went to the porch. The gentlemen of the Emperor's suite ran down the stairs and went to their horses. 
Heine, the same groom who had been at Austerlitz, led up the Emperor's horse, and the faint creak of a footstep Rostov knew at once was heard on the stairs. Forgetting the danger of being recognized, Rostov went close to the porch, together with some inquisitive civilians, and again, after two years, saw those features he adored. That same face and same look and step, and the same union of majesty and mildness, and the feeling of enthusiasm and love for his sovereign rose again in Rostov's soul in all its old force. In the uniform of the Preobrazensk regiment, white chamois leather breeches and high boots, and wearing a star Rostov did not know, it was that of the Légion d'honneur, the monarch came out into the porch, putting on his gloves and carrying his hat under his arm. He stopped and looked about him brightening everything around by his glance. He spoke a few words to some of the generals, and recognizing the former commander of Rostov's division, smiled and beckoned to him. All the suite drew back and Rostov saw the general talking for some time to the Emperor. The Emperor said a few words to him and took a step toward his horse. Again the crowd of members of the suite and street-gazers, among whom was Rostov, moved nearer to the Emperor. Stopping beside his horse with his hand on the saddle, the Emperor turned to the cavalry general and said in a loud voice, evidently wishing to be heard by all, "'I cannot do it, General. I cannot, because the law is stronger than I.' And he raised his foot to the stirrup. The general bowed his head respectfully, and the monarch mounted and rode down the street at a gallop. Beside himself with enthusiasm, Rostov ran after him with the crowd. End of Book 5, Chapter 20《Book 5, Chapter 21 of War and Peace, Volume 2, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 5, Chapter 21 The Emperor rode to the square, where, facing one another, a battalion of the Preobrazensk regiment stood on the right, and a battalion of the French guards in their bearskin caps on the left. As the Tsar rode up to one flank of the battalions, which presented arms, another group of horsemen galloped up to the opposite flank, and at the head of them Rostov recognized Napoleon. It could be no one else. He came at a gallop, wearing a small hat, a blue uniform open over a white vest, and the St. Andrew ribbon over his shoulder. He was riding a very fine thoroughbred grey Arab horse with a crimson gold-embroidered saddle-cloth. On approaching Alexander he raised his hat, and as he did so, Rostov, with his cavalryman's eye, could not help noticing that Napoleon did not sit well or firmly in the saddle. The battalion shouted, Hurrah! and Vive l'Empereur! Napoleon said something to Alexander, and both emperors dismounted and took each other's hands. Napoleon's face wore an unpleasant and artificial smile. Alexander was saying something affable to him. In spite of the trampling of the French gendarmes' horses, which were pushing back the crowd, Rostov kept his eyes on every movement of Alexander and Bonaparte. It struck him as a surprise that Alexander treated Bonaparte as an equal, and that the latter was quite at ease with the Tsar, as if such relations with an emperor were an everyday matter to him. Alexander and Napoleon, with the long train of their suites, 
approached the right flank of the Preobrazensk battalion and came straight up to the crowd standing there. The crowd unexpectedly found itself so close to the Emperor's that Rostov, standing in the front row, was afraid he might be recognized. "'Sire, I ask your permission to present the Legion of Honor to the bravest of your soldiers,' said a sharp, precise voice, articulating every letter. This was said by the undersized Napoleon, looking up straight into Alexander's eyes. Alexander listened attentively to what was said to him, and bending his head, smiled pleasantly. "'To him who has borne himself most bravely in this last war,' added Napoleon, accentuating each syllable, as with a composure and assurance exasperating to Rostov, he ran his eyes over the Russian ranks drawn up before him, who all presented arms with their eyes fixed on their emperor. "'Will Your Majesty allow me to consult the Colonel?' said Alexander, and took a few hasty steps toward Prince Kozlovsky, the commander of the battalion. Bonaparte, meanwhile, began taking the glove off his small white hand, tore it in doing so, and threw it away. An aide-de-camp behind him rushed forward and picked it up. "'To whom shall it be given?' the Emperor Alexander asked Kozlovsky, in Russian, in a low voice. "'To whomever Your Majesty commands.' The Emperor knit his brows with dissatisfaction, and glancing back, remarked, "'But we must give him an answer.' Kozlovsky scanned the ranks resolutely, and included Rostov in his scrutiny. "'Can it be me?' thought Rostov. "'Lazarev,' the colonel called, with a frown, and Lazarev, the first soldier in the ranks, stepped briskly forward. "'Where are you off to? Stop here!' voices whispered to Lazarev, who did not know where to go. Lazarev stopped casting a sidelong look at his colonel in alarm. His face twitched, as often happens to soldiers called before the ranks. Napoleon slightly turned his head, and put his plump little hand out behind him as if to take something. The members of his suite, guessing at once what he wanted, moved about and whispered as they passed something from one to another, and a page, the same one Rostov had seen the previous evening at Boris, ran forward, and, bowing respectfully over the outstretched hand, and not keeping it waiting a moment, laid in it an order on a red ribbon. Napoleon, without looking, pressed two fingers together, and the badge was between them. Then he approached Lazarev, who rolled his eyes and persistently gazed at his own monarch, looked round at the Emperor Alexander to imply that what he was now doing was done for the sake of his ally and the small white hand holding the order touched one of Lazarev's buttons. It was as if Napoleon knew that it was only necessary for his hand to deign to touch that soldier's breast for the soldier to be forever happy, rewarded, and distinguished from everyone else in the world. Napoleon merely laid the cross on Lazarev's breast, and dropping his hand, turned toward Alexander as though sure that the cross would adhere there. And it really did. Officious hands, Russian and French, immediately seized the cross and fastened it to the uniform. Lazarev glanced morosely at the little man with white hands who was doing something to him, and still standing motionless, presenting arms, looked again straight into Alexander's eyes, as if asking whether he should stand there, or go away, or do something else. But receiving no orders, he remained for some time in that rigid position. The emperors remounted and rode away. The Preobrazensk battalion, breaking rank, mingled with the French guards and sat down at the tables prepared for them. Lazarev sat in the place of honor. 
Russian and French officers embraced him, congratulated him, and pressed his hands. Crowds of officers and civilians drew near merely to see him. A rumble of Russian and French voices and laughter filled the air round the tables in the square. Two officers with flushed faces, looking cheerful and happy, passed by Rostov. "'What do you think of the treat? All on silver plate,' one of them was saying. "'Have you seen Lazarev?' "'I have.' "'Tomorrow, I hear, the Preobrazenskys will give them a dinner.' "'Yes, but what luck for Lazarev! Twelve hundred francs pension for life!' "'Here's a cap, lads!' shouted a Preobrazensk soldier, donning a shaggy French cap. "'It's a fine thing! First rate!' "'Have you heard the password?' asked one guard's officer of another. "'The day before yesterday it was Napoleon, France, Bravieur. Yesterday, Alexander, Russie, Grandeur. One day our emperor gives it, and the next day Napoleon. Tomorrow our emperor will send a St. George's cross to the bravest of the French guards. It has to be done. He must respond in kind.' Boris, too, with his friend Zelinsky, came to see the Preobrazensk banquet. On his way back he noticed Rostov standing by the corner of a house. "'Rostov, how do you do? We missed one another,' he said, and could not refrain from asking what was the matter, so strangely dismal and troubled was Rostov's face. "'Nothing, nothing,' replied Rostov. "'You'll call round?' "'Yes, I will.' Rostov stood at that corner for a long time, watching the feast from a distance. In his mind a painful process was going on which he could not bring to a conclusion. Terrible doubts rose in his soul. Now he remembered Denisov with his changed expression, his submission, and the whole hospital, with arms and legs torn off and its dirt and disease. So vividly did he recall that hospital stench of dead flesh that he looked round to see where the smell came from. Next he thought of that self-satisfied Bonaparte, with his small white hand, who was now an emperor, liked and respected by Alexander. Then why those severed arms and legs, and those dead men? Then again he thought of Lazarev rewarded and Denisov punished and unpardoned. He caught himself harboring such strange thoughts that he was frightened. The smell of the food the Preobrazenskys were eating, and a sense of hunger, recalled him from these reflections. He had to get something to eat before going away. He went to a hotel he had noticed that morning. There he found so many people, among them officers who, like himself, had come in civilian clothes, that he had difficulty in getting a dinner. Two officers of his own division joined him. The conversation naturally turned on the peace. The officers, his comrades, like most of the army, were dissatisfied with the peace concluded after the Battle of Friedland. They said that, had we held out a little longer, Napoleon would have been done for, as his troops had neither provisions nor ammunition. Nicholas ate and drank, chiefly the latter, in silence. He finished a couple of bottles of wine by himself. The process in his mind went on tormenting him without reaching a conclusion. He feared to give way to his thoughts, yet could not get rid of them. Suddenly, on one of the officers saying that it was humiliating to look at the French, Rostov began shouting with uncalled-for wrath, and therefore much to the surprise of the officers. "'How can you judge what's best?' he cried, the blood suddenly rushing to his face. "'How can you judge the Emperor's actions? What right have we to argue? 
we cannot comprehend either the Emperor's aims or his actions.' "'But I never said a word about the Emperor,' said the officer, justifying himself and unable to understand Rostov's outburst, except on the supposition that he was drunk. But Rostov did not listen to him. "'We are not diplomatic officials. We are soldiers, and nothing more,' he went on. "'If we are ordered to die, we must die. If we're punished, it means that we deserved it. It's not for us to judge. If the Emperor pleases to recognize Bonaparte as Emperor and to conclude an alliance with him, it means that that is the right thing to do. If once we begin judging and arguing about everything, nothing sacred will be left. That way we shall be saying there is no God, nothing," shouted Nicholas, banging the table, very little to the point as it seemed to his listeners, but quite relevantly to the course of his own thoughts. Our business is to do our duty, to fight and not to think. That's all," said he. "'And to drink,' said one of the officers, not wishing to quarrel. "'Yes, and to drink,' assented Nicholas. "'Hello there! Another bottle!' he shouted. In 1808 the Emperor Alexander went to Erfurt for a fresh interview with the Emperor Napoleon and in the upper circles of Petersburg there was much talk of the grandeur of this important meeting. End of Book 5, Chapter 21《Book 5, Chapter 22, of War and Peace, Volume 2, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 5, Chapter 22 In 1809 the intimacy between the world's two arbiters, as Napoleon and Alexander were called, was such that when Napoleon declared war on Austria, a Russian corps crossed the frontier to cooperate with our old enemy Bonaparte against our old ally, the Emperor of Austria, and in court circles the possibility of marriage between Napoleon and one of Alexander's sisters was spoken of. But besides considerations of foreign policy, the attention of Russian society was at that time keenly directed on the internal changes that were being undertaken in all the departments of government. Life, meanwhile, real life with its essential interests of health and sickness, toil and rest, and its intellectual interests in thought, science, poetry, music, love, friendship, hatred, and passions, went on as usual, independently of and apart from political friendship or enmity with Napoleon Bonaparte and from all the schemes of reconstruction. End of Book 5, Chapter 22 Book Six, Chapter One, of War and Peace, Volume Two, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Six, eighteen o eight to eighteen ten, Chapter One. Prince Andrew had spent two years continuously in the country. All the plans Pierre had attempted on his estates and constantly changing from one thing to another had never accomplished, were carried out by Prince Andrew without display and without perceptible difficulty. He had in the highest degree a practical tenacity which Pierre lacked, and without fuss or strain on his part this set things going. 
on one of his estates, the three hundred serfs were liberated and became free agricultural laborers, this being one of the first examples of the kind in Russia. On other estates, the serfs' compulsory labor was commuted for a quit-rent. A trained midwife was engaged for Bugacharovo at his expense, and a priest was paid to teach reading and writing to the children of the peasants and household serfs. Prince Andrew spent half his time at Bald Hills with his father and his son, who was still in the care of nurses. The other half he spent in Bugacharovo Cloister, as his father called Prince Andrew's estate. Despite the indifference to the affairs of the world he had expressed to Pierre, he diligently followed all that went on, received many books, and to his surprise noticed that when he or his father had visitors from Petersburg, the very vortex of life, these people lagged behind himself, who never left the country, in knowledge of what was happening in home and foreign affairs. Besides being occupied with his estates and reading a great variety of books, Prince Andrew was at his time busy with a critical survey of our last two unfortunate campaigns, and with drawing up a proposal for a reform of the army rules and regulations. In the spring of 1809 he went to visit the Ryazan estates which had been inherited by his son, whose guardian he was. Warmed by the spring sunshine, he sat in the kalesh looking at the new grass, the first leaves on the birches, and the first puffs of white spring clouds floating across the clear blue sky. He was not thinking of anything, but looked absent-mindedly and cheerfully from side to side. They crossed the ferry where he had talked with Pierre the year before. They went through the muddy village, past threshing floors and green fields of winter rye, downhill where snow still lodged near the bridge, uphill where the clay had been liquefied by the rain, past strips of stubble land and bushes touched with green here and there, and into a birch forest growing on both sides of the road. In the forest it was almost hot, no wind could be felt. The birches with their sticky green leaves were motionless, and lilac-colored flowers and the first blades of green grass were pushing up and lifting last year's leaves. The coarse evergreen color of the small fir-trees scattered here and there among the birches was an unpleasant reminder of winter. On entering the forest the horses began to snort and sweated visibly. Peter the footman made some remark to the coachman. The latter assented. But apparently the coachman's sympathy was not enough for Peter, and he turned on the box toward his master. "'How pleasant it is, Your Excellency,' he said with a respectful smile. "'What?' "'It's pleasant, Your Excellency.' "'What is he talking about?' thought Prince Andrew. "'Oh, the spring, I suppose,' he thought as he turned round. "'Yes, really, everything is green already. How early!' The birches and cherry and alders, too, are coming out. But the oaks show no sign yet. Ah, here is one oak. At the edge of the road stood an oak. Probably ten times the age of the birches that formed the forest, it was ten times as thick and twice as tall as they. It was an enormous tree, its girth twice as great as a man could embrace, and evidently long ago some of its branches had been broken off and its bark scarred. With its huge, ungainly limbs sprawling unsymmetrically, and its gnarled hands and fingers, it stood an aged, stern, and scornful monster among the smiling birch-trees. Only the dead-looking evergreen firs dotted about in the forest, and this oak refused to yield to the charm of spring, or notice either the spring or the sunshine. 
spring, love, happiness, this oak seemed to say. Are you not weary of that stupid, meaningless, constantly repeated fraud? Always the same, and always a fraud? There is no spring, no sun, no happiness. Look at those cramped dead firs, ever the same, and at me too, sticking out my broken and bark fingers just where they have grown, whether from my back or my sides. As they have grown, so I stand, and I do not believe in your hopes and your lies." As he passed through the forest, Prince Andrew turned several times to look at that oak, as if expecting something from it. Under the oak, too, were flowers and grass, but it stood among them scowling, rigid, misshapen, and grim as ever. "'Yes, the oak is right, a thousand times right,' thought Prince Andrew. "'Let others, the young, yield afresh to that fraud, but we know life, our life is finished.' A whole sequence of new thoughts, hopeless but mournfully pleasant, rose in his soul in connection with that tree. During this journey, he, as it were, considered his life afresh and arrived at his old conclusion, restful in its hopelessness, that it was not for him to begin anything anew, but that he must live out his life, content to do no harm and not disturbing himself or desiring anything. End of Book Six, Chapter One Book Six, Chapter Two, of War and Peace, Volume Two, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Six, Chapter Two. Prince Andrew had to see the marshal of the nobility for the district in connection with the affairs of the Ryazan estate, of which he was trustee. This marshal was Count Ilya Rostov, and in the middle of May Prince Andrew went to visit him. It was now hot spring weather. The whole forest was already clothed in green. It was dusty and so hot that on passing near water one longed to bathe. Prince Andrew, depressed and preoccupied with the business about which he had to speak to the marshal, was driving up the avenue in the grounds of the Rostovs' house at Otradno. He heard merry girlish cries behind some trees on the right, and saw a group of girls running to cross the path of his calèche. Ahead of the rest and nearer to him ran a dark-haired and remarkably slim, pretty girl in a yellow chintz dress, with a white handkerchief on her head from under which loose locks of hair escaped. The girl was shouting something, but seeing that he was a stranger, ran back laughing without looking at him. Suddenly, he did not know why, he felt a pang. The day was so beautiful, the sun so bright, everything around so gay, but that slim pretty girl did not know, or wish to know, of his existence, and was contented and cheerful in her own separate, probably foolish, but bright and happy life. What is she so glad about? What is she thinking of? Not of the military regulations, or of the arrangement of the Ryazan serfs' quit-rents. Of what is she thinking? Why is she so happy? Prince Andrew asked himself with instinctive curiosity. In 1809, Count Ilya Rostov was living at Otradno, just as he had done in former years, that is, entertaining almost the whole province with hunts, theatricals, dinners, and music. He was glad to see Prince Andrew, as he was to see any new visitor, and insisted on his staying the night. 
During the dull day, in the course of which he was entertained by his elderly hosts and by the more important of the visitors, the old Count's house was crowded on account of an approaching name-day, Prince Andrew repeatedly glanced at Natasha, gay and laughing among the younger members of the company, and asked himself each time, "'What is she thinking about? Why is she so glad?' That night, alone in new surroundings, he was long unable to sleep. He read a while, and then put out his candle, but relit it. It was hot in the room, the inside shutters of which were closed. He was cross with this stupid old man, as he called Rostov, who had made him stay by assuring him that some necessary documents had not yet arrived from town, and he was vexed with himself for having stayed. He got up and went to the window to open it. As soon as he opened the shutters, the moonlight, as if it had long been watching for this, burst into the room. He opened the casement. The night was fresh, bright, and very still. Just before the window was a row of pollard trees, looking black on one side and with a silvery light on the other. Beneath the trees grew some kind of lush, wet, bushy vegetation, with silver-lit leaves and stems here and there. Farther back, beyond the dark trees, a roof glittered with dew. To the right was a leafy tree with brilliantly white trunk and branches. And above it shone the moon, nearly at its full, in a pale, almost starless spring sky. Prince Andrew leaned his elbows on the window-ledge, and his eyes rested on that sky. His room was on the first floor. Those in the rooms above were also awake. He heard female voices overhead. "'Just once more,' said a girlish voice above him, which Prince Andrew recognized at once. "'But when are you coming to bed?' replied another voice. "'I won't. I can't sleep. What's the use? Come now, for the last time.' Two girlish voices sang a musical passage, the end of some song. "'Oh, how lovely! Now go to sleep, if there's an end of it.' "'You go to sleep, but I can't,' said the first voice, coming nearer to the window. She was evidently leaning right out, for the rustle of her dress and even her breathing could be heard. Everything was stone still, like the moon and its light and the shadows. Prince Andrew, too, dared not stir for fear of betraying his unintentional presence. "'Sonia! Sonia!' he again heard the first speaker. "'Oh, how can you sleep? Only look how glorious it is! Ah, how glorious! Do wake up, Sonia!' she said almost with tears in her voice. "'There never, never was such a lovely night before!' Sonia made some reluctant reply. "'Do just come and see what a moon!' Oh, how lovely! Come here! Darling sweetheart, come here! There, you see! I feel like sitting down on my heels, putting my arms round my knees like this, straining tight, as tight as possible, and flying away. Like this. Take care! You'll fall out! He heard the sound of a scuffle, and Sonia's disapproving voice. It's past one o'clock. Oh, you only spoil things for me! All right, go, go." Again all was silent, but Prince Andrew knew she was still sitting there. From time to time he heard a soft rustle, and at times a sigh. "'Oh, God! Oh, God! What does it mean?' she suddenly exclaimed. "'To bed, then, if it must be,' and she slammed the casement. 
for her I might as well not exist," thought Prince Andrew while he listened to her voice, for some reason expecting yet fearing that she might say something about him. "'There she is again! As if it were on purpose!' thought he. In his soul there suddenly rose such an unexpected turmoil of youthful thoughts and hopes, contrary to the whole tenor of his life, that unable to explain his condition to himself, he lay down and fell asleep at once. End of Book Six, Chapter Two. Book Six, Chapter Three, of War and Peace, Volume Two by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Six, Chapter Three. Next morning, having taken leave of no one but the Count and not waiting for the ladies to appear, Prince Andrew set off for home. It was already the beginning of June when on his return journey he drove into the birch forest where the gnarled old oak had made so strange and memorable an impression on him. In the forest the harness-bell sounded yet more muffled than they had six weeks before, for now all was thick, shady, and dense, and the young firs dotted about in the forest did not jar on the general beauty but lending themselves to the mood around were delicately green with fluffy young shoots. The whole day had been hot. Somewhere a storm was gathering, but only a small cloud had scattered some raindrops lightly, sprinkling the road in sappy leaves. The left side of the forest was dark in the shade, the right side glittered in the sunlight, wet and shiny and scarcely swayed by the breeze. Everything was in blossom the nightingales trilled, and their voices reverberated, now near, now far away. "'Yes, here in this forest was that oak with which I agreed,' thought Prince Andrew. "'But where is it?' he again wondered, gazing at the left side of the road, and without recognizing it, he looked with admiration at the very oak he sought. The old oak, quite transfigured, spreading out a canopy of sappy, dark-green foliage, stood wrapped and slightly trembling in the rays of the evening sun. Neither gnarled fingers nor old scars nor old doubts and sorrows were any of them in evidence now. Through the hard century-old bark, even where there were no twigs, leaves had sprouted, such as one could hardly believe the old veteran could have produced. "'Yes, it is the same oak,' thought Prince Andrew and all at once he was seized by an unreasoning springtime feeling of joy and renewal. All the best moments of his life suddenly rose to his memory. Austerlitz, with the lofty heavens, his wife's dead, reproachful face, Pierre at the ferry, that girl thrilled by the beauty of the night, and that night itself and the moon, and—all this rushed suddenly to his mind. No, life is not over at thirty-one. Prince Andrew suddenly decided finally and decisively. "'It is not enough for me to know what I have in me. Everyone must know it. Pierre, and that young girl who wanted to fly away into the sky, everyone must know me, so that my life may not be lived for myself alone, while others live so apart from it, but so that it may be reflected in them all, and they and I may live in harmony.' On reaching home, Prince Andrew decided to go to Petersburg that autumn, and found all sorts of reasons for this decision. 
a whole series of sensible and logical considerations showing it to be essential for him to go to Petersburg, and even to re-enter the service, kept springing up in his mind. He could not now understand how he could ever even have doubted the necessity of taking an active share in life, just as a month before he had not understood how the idea of leaving the quiet country could ever enter his head. It now seemed clear to him that all his experience of life must be senselessly wasted unless he applied it to some kind of work, and again played an active part in life. He did not even remember how formerly, on the strength of similar wretched logical arguments, it had seemed obvious that he would be degrading himself if he now, after the lessons he had had in life, allowed himself to believe in the possibility of being useful and in the possibility of happiness or love. Now reason suggested quite the opposite. After that journey to Riazan, he found the country dull. His former pursuits no longer interested him, and often, when sitting alone in his study, he got up, went to the mirror, and gazed a long time at his own face. Then he would turn away to the portrait of his dead Lisa, who, with hair curled a la grec, looked tenderly and gaily at him out of the gilt frame. She did not now say those former terrible words to him, but looked simply, merrily, and inquisitively at him. And Prince Andrew, crossing his arms behind him, long paced the room, now frowning, now smiling, as he reflected on those irrational, inexpressible thoughts, secret as a crime, which altered his whole life and were connected with Pierre, with fame, with the girl at the window, the oak, the woman's beauty and love and if anyone came into his room at such moments, he was particularly cold, stern, and above all, unpleasantly logical. "'My dear,' Princess Mary, entering at such a moment, would say, "'little Nicholas can't go out today. It's very cold.' "'If it were hot,' Prince Andrew would reply at such times very dryly to his sister, "'he could go out in his smock. But as it is cold, he must wear warm clothes, which were designed for that purpose.' That is what follows from the fact that it is cold, and not that a child who needs fresh air should remain at home," he would add with extreme logic, as if punishing someone for those secret illogical emotions that stirred within him. At such moments Prince Mary would think how intellectual work dries men up. End of Book Six, Chapter Three Book Six, Chapter Four, of War and Peace, Volume Two, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Six, Chapter Four. Prince Andrew arrived in Petersburg in August, eighteen o nine. It was the time when the youthful Speransky was at the zenith of his fame, and his reforms were being pushed forward with the greatest energy. That same August. The Emperor was thrown from his caleche, injured his leg, and remained three weeks at Peterhof, receiving Speransky every day and no one else. At that time the two famous decrees were being prepared that so agitated society. Abolishing court ranks and introducing examinations to qualify for the grades of collegiate assessor and state councillor, not merely these, but a whole state constitution, intended to change the existing order of government in Russia legal, administrative, and financial, from the Council of State down to the district tribunals. 
Now, those vague liberal dreams with which the Emperor Alexander had ascended the throne, and which he had tried to put into effect with the aid of his associates, Sartorisky, Novosiltsev, Kobuche, and Stroganov, whom he himself in jest had called his Comité de Salut Public, were taking shape and being realized. Now all these men were replaced by Speransky on the civil side and Arakcheyev on the military. Soon after his arrival, Prince Andrew, as a gentleman of the chamber, presented himself at court and at a levy. The Emperor, though he met him twice, did not favor him with a single word. It had always seemed to Prince Andrew before that he was antipathetic to the Emperor, and that the latter disliked his face and personality generally, and in the cold, repellent glance the Emperor gave him, he now found further confirmation of this surmise. The courtiers explained the Emperor's neglect of him by His Majesty's displeasure at Bolkonsky's not having served since 1805. "'I know myself that one cannot help one's sympathies and antipathies,' thought Prince Andrew. So it will not do to present my proposal for the reform of the army regulations to the Emperor personally, but the project will speak for itself." He mentioned what he had written to an old field-marshal, a friend of his father's. The field-marshal made an appointment to see him, received him graciously, and promised to inform the Emperor. A few days later Prince Andrew received notice that he was to go to see the Minister of War, Count Arakcheyev. On the appointed day Prince Andrew entered Count Arakcheyev's waiting-room at nine in the morning. He did not know Arakcheyev personally, had never seen him, and all he had heard of him inspired him with but little respect for the man. He is Minister of War, a man trusted by the Emperor, and I need not concern myself about his personal qualities. He has been commissioned to consider my project, so he alone can get it adopted thought Prince Andrew as he waited among a number of important and unimportant people in Count Arakcheyev's waiting-room. During his service, chiefly as adjutant, Prince Andrew had seen the anterooms of many important men, and the different types of such rooms were well known to him. Count Arakcheyev's anteroom had quite a special character. The faces of the unimportant people awaiting their turn for an audience showed embarrassment and servility. The faces of those of higher rank expressed a common feeling of awkwardness, covered by a mask of unconcern and ridicule of themselves, their situation, and the person for whom they were waiting. Some walked thoughtfully up and down, others whispered and laughed. Prince Andrew heard the nickname Sila Andreevich and the words, Uncle will give it to us hot, in reference to Count Arakcheyev. One general, an important personage, evidently feeling offended at having to wait so long, sat crossing and uncrossing his legs and smiling contemptuously to himself. But the moment the door opened one feeling alone appeared on all faces, that of fear. Prince Andrew for the second time asked the adjutant on duty to take in his name, but received an ironical look and was told that his turn would come in due course. After some others had been shown in and out of the minister's room by the adjutant on duty, an officer who struck Prince Andrew by his humiliated and frightened air was admitted at that terrible door. This officer's audience lasted a long time. Then suddenly the grating sound of a harsh voice was heard from the other side of the door, and the officer, with pale face and trembling lips, came out and passed through the waiting-room, clutching his head. After this Prince Andrew was conducted to the door, and the officer on duty said in a whisper, "'To the right, at the window.' 
Prince Andrew entered a plain, tidy room, and saw at the table a man of forty, with a long waist, a long, closely cropped head, deep wrinkles, scowling brows above dull, greenish-hazel eyes, and an overhanging red nose. Erekcheyev turned his head toward him without looking at him. "'What is your petition?' asked Erekcheyev. "'I am not petitioning, Your Excellency,' returned Prince Andrew quietly. Erekcheyev's eyes turned toward him. "'Sit down,' said he. "'Prince Bolkonsky?' "'I am not petitioning about anything. His Majesty the Emperor has deigned to send Your Excellency a project submitted by me.' "'You see, my dear sir, I have read your project,' interrupted Erekcheyev, uttering only the first words amiably, and then, again without looking at Prince Andrew, relapsing gradually into a tone of grumbling contempt. "'You are proposing new military laws? There are many laws, but no one to carry out the old ones. Nowadays everybody designs laws. It is easier writing than doing.' I came at His Majesty the Emperor's wish to learn from Your Excellency how you propose to deal with the memorandum I have presented," said Prince Andrew politely. I have endorsed a resolution on your memorandum and sent it to the committee. I do not approve of it," said Erekcheyev, rising and taking a paper from his writing-table. Here, and he handed it to Prince Andrew. Across the paper was scrawled in pencil, without capital letters, misspelled and without punctuation unsoundly constructed because resembles an imitation of the French military code, and from the articles of war needlessly deviating. "'To what committee has the memorandum been referred?' inquired Prince Andrew. "'To the Committee on Army Regulations, and I have recommended that Your Honour should be appointed a member, but without a salary.' Prince Andrew smiled. "'I don't want one.' "'A member without salary,' repeated Erekcheyev. I have the honor. Eh, call the next one. Who else is there? he shouted, bowing to Prince Andrew. End of Book Six, Chapter Four. Book Six, Chapter Five of War and Peace, Volume Two, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Six, Chapter Five. While waiting for the announcement of his appointment to the committee, Prince Andrew looked up his former acquaintances, particularly those he knew to be in power and whose aid he might need. In Petersburg, he now experienced the same feeling he had had on the eve of a battle, when troubled by anxious curiosity and irresistibly attracted to the ruling circles where the future, on which the fate of millions depended, was being shaped from the irritation of the older men, the curiosity of the uninitiated, the reserve of the initiated, the hurry and preoccupation of everyone, and the innumerable committees and commissions of whose existence he learned every day, he felt that now, in 1809, here in Petersburg a vast civil conflict was in preparation, the commander-in-chief of which was a mysterious person he did not know, but who was supposed to be a man of genius, Speransky and this movement of reconstruction of which Prince Andrew had a vague idea, and Speransky its chief promoter, began to interest him so keenly that the question of the army regulations quickly receded to a secondary place in his consciousness. 
Prince Andrew was most favorably placed to secure a good reception in the highest and most diverse Petersburg circles of the day. The reforming party cordially welcomed and courted him, in the first place because he was reputed to be clever and very well read, and secondly because by liberating his serfs he had obtained the reputation of being a liberal. The party of the old and dissatisfied, who censured the innovations, turned to him expecting his sympathy in their disapproval of the reforms, simply because he was the son of his father. The feminine society world welcomed him gladly, because he was rich, distinguished, a good match, and almost a newcomer, with a halo of romance on account of his supposed death and the tragic loss of his wife. Besides this, the general opinion of all who had known him previously was that he had greatly improved during these last five years, having softened and grown more manly, lost his former affectation, pride and contemptuous irony, and acquired the serenity that comes with years. People talked about him, were interested in him, and wanted to meet him. The day after his interview with Count Arakcheyev, Prince Andrew spent the evening at Count Kochebe's. He told the Count of his interview with Sila Andreevich. Kochebe spoke of Arakcheyev by that nickname with the same vague irony Prince Andrew had noticed in the Minister of War's anteroom. Mon cher, even in this case you can't do without Michael Mikhailovich Speransky. He manages everything. I'll speak to him. He has promised to come this evening. What has Speransky to do with the army regulations? asked Prince Andrew. Kochube shook his head smilingly, as if surprised at Bolkonsky's simplicity. "'We were talking to him about you a few days ago,' Kochube continued, "'and about your freed plowman. "'Oh, is it you, Prince, who have freed your serfs?' said an old man of Catherine's day, turning contemptuously toward Bolkonsky. "'It was a small estate that brought in no profit,' replied Prince Andrew, trying to extenuate his action so as to not irritate the old man uselessly. "'Afraid of being late,' said the old man, looking at Kochebe. "'There's one thing I don't understand,' he continued. "'Who will plough the land if they are set free? It is easy to write laws, but difficult to rule. Just the same as now. I ask you, Count, who will be the heads of the departments when everybody has to pass examinations?' "'Those who pass the examinations, I suppose,' replied Kochebe, crossing his legs and glancing round. "'Well, I have Prayanichnikov serving under me, a splendid man, a priceless man. But he's sixty. Is he to go up for examination?' "'Yes, that's a difficulty, as education is not at all general. But—' Count Kochebe did not finish. He rose, took Prince Andrew by the arm— and went to meet a tall, bald, fair man of about forty, with a large open forehead and a long face of unusual and peculiar whiteness, who was just entering. The newcomer wore a blue swallow-tail coat with a cross suspended from his neck and a star on his left breast. It was Speransky. Prince Andrew recognized him at once, and felt a throb within him, as happens at critical moments of life. Whether it was from respect, envy, or anticipation, he did not know. Speransky's whole figure was of a peculiar type that made him easily recognizable. In the society in which Prince Andrew lived, he had never seen anyone who together with awkward and clumsy gestures possessed such calmness and self-assurance. He had never seen so resolute yet gentle an expression as that in those half-closed, rather humid eyes, 
or so firm a smile that expressed nothing. Nor had he heard such a refined, smooth, soft voice. Above all, he had never seen such delicate whiteness of face or hands, hands which were broad but very plump, soft, and white. Such whiteness and softness Prince Andrew had only seen on the faces of soldiers who had been long in hospital. This was Speransky, Secretary of State, reporter to the Emperor and his companion at Erfurt, where he had more than once met and talked with Napoleon. Speransky did not shift his eyes from one face to another, as people involuntarily do on entering a large company, and was in no hurry to speak. He spoke slowly, with assurance that he would be listened to, and he looked only at the person with whom he was conversing. Prince Andrew followed Speransky's every word and movement with particular attention. As happens to some people, especially to men who judge those near to them severely, he always on meeting anyone new, especially anyone whom, like Speransky, he knew by reputation, expected to discover in him the perfection of human qualities. Speransky told Kochebay he was sorry he had been unable to come sooner, as he had been detained at the palace. He did not say that the Emperor had kept him, and Prince Andrew noticed this affectation of modesty. When Kochebay introduced Prince Andrew, Speransky slowly turned his eyes to Bolkonsky with his customary smile and looked at him in silence. "'I am very glad to make your acquaintance. I had heard of you, as everyone has.' he said, after a pause. Kochebay said a few words about the reception Arakcheyev had given Bolkonsky. Speransky smiled more markedly. "'The chairman of the Committee on Army Regulations is my good friend Monsieur Magnitsky,' he said, fully articulating every word and syllable. "'And if you like, I can put you in touch with him.' He paused at the full stop. I hope you will find him sympathetic and ready to cooperate in promoting all that is reasonable." A circle soon formed round Speransky, and the old man who had talked about his subordinate Pryanichnikov addressed a question to him. Prince Andrew, without joining in the conversation, watched every movement of Speransky's. This man, not long since an insignificant divinity student, who now Bolkonsky thought held in his hands, those plump white hands, the fate of Russia. Prince Andrew was struck by the extraordinarily disdainful composure with which Speransky answered the old man. He appeared to address condescending words to him from an immeasurable height. When the old man began to speak too loud, Speransky smiled and said he could not judge of the advantage or disadvantage of what pleased the sovereign. Having talked for a little while in the general circle, Speransky rose and, coming up to Prince Andrew, took him along to the other end of the room. It was clear that he thought it necessary to interest himself in Bolkonsky. "'I had no chance to talk with you, Prince, during the animated conversation in which that venerable gentleman involved me,' he said with a mildly contemptuous smile, as if intimating by that smile that he and Prince Andrew understood the insignificance of the people with whom he had just been talking. This flattered Prince Andrew. I have known of you for a long time, first from your action with regard to your serfs, a first example of which it is very desirable that there should be more imitators, and secondly because you are one of those gentlemen of the chamber who have not considered themselves offended by the new decree concerning the ranks allotted to courtiers, 
which is causing so much gossip and tittle-tattle. No, said Prince Andrew, my father did not wish me to take advantage of the privilege. I began the service from the lower grade. Your father, a man of the last century, evidently stands above our contemporaries who so condemn this measure which merely re-establishes natural justice. I think, however, that these condemnations have some ground, returned Prince Andrew, trying to resist Speransky's influence, of which he began to be conscious. He did not like to agree with him in everything and felt a wish to contradict. Though he usually spoke easily and well, he felt a difficulty in expressing himself now while talking with Speransky. He was too much absorbed in observing the famous man's personality. "'Grounds of personal ambition, maybe,' Speransky put in quietly. "'And of state interest, to some extent,' said Prince Andrew. "'What do you mean?' asked Speransky quietly, lowering his eyes. "'I am an admirer of Montesquieu,' replied Prince Andrew and his idea that le principe des monarchies et l'honneur me paraît incontestable. Certains droits et privilèges de la noblesse me paraissent être moyens de soutenir ce sentiment. The principle of monarchies is honor seems to me incontestable. Certain rights and privileges for the aristocracy appear to me a means of maintaining that sentiment. The smile vanished from Speransky's white face, which was much improved by the change. Probably Prince Andrew's thought interested him. Si vous envisagez la question sous ce point de vue. If you regard the question from that point of view, he began, pronouncing French with evident difficulty, and speaking even slower than in Russian, but quite calmly. Speransky went on to say that honor, l'honneur, cannot be upheld by privileges harmful to the service. That honor, l'honneur, is either a negative concept of not doing what is blameworthy, or it is a source of emulation in pursuit of condemnation and rewards, which recognize it. His arguments were concise, simple, and clear. An institution upholding honor, the source of emulation, is one similar to the Légion d'honneur of the great Emperor Napoleon, not harmful but helpful to the success of the service, but not a class or court privilege. I do not dispute that, but it cannot be denied that court privileges have attained the same end," returned Prince Andrew. Every courtier considers himself bound to maintain his position worthily. Yet you do not care to avail yourself of the privilege, Prince," said Speransky, indicating by a smile that he wished to finish amiably an argument which was embarrassing for his companion. If you will do me the honor of calling on me on Wednesday, he added, I will, after talking with Magnitsky, let you know what may interest you, and shall also have the pleasure of a more detailed chat with you." Closing his eyes, he bowed à la Française without taking leave, and trying to attract as little attention as possible, he left the room. End of Book Six, Chapter Five Book Six, Chapter Six, of War and Peace, Volume Two, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Six, Chapter Six. During the first weeks of his stay in Petersburg, 
Prince Andrew felt the whole trend of thought he had formed during his life of seclusion, quite overshadowed by the trifling cares that engrossed him in that city. On returning home in the evening, he would jot down in his notebook four or five necessary calls or appointments for certain hours. The mechanism of life, the arrangement of the day so as to be in time everywhere, absorbed the greater part of his vital energy. He did nothing, did not even think or find time to think, but only talked, and talked successfully, of what he had thought while in the country. He sometimes noticed with dissatisfaction that he repeated the same remark on the same day in different circles. But he was so busy for whole days together that he had no time to notice that he was thinking of nothing. As he had done on their first meeting at Kochebe's, Speransky produced a strong impression on Prince Andrew on the Wednesday when he received him tete-a-tete -tete at his own house, and talked to him long and confidentially. To Bolkonsky so many people appeared contemptible and insignificant creatures, and he so longed to find in someone the living ideal of that perfection toward which he strove, that he readily believed that in Speransky he had found this ideal of a perfectly rational and virtuous man. Had Speransky sprung from the same class as himself and possessed the same breeding and traditions, Bolkonsky would soon have discovered his weak, human, unheroic sides. But as it was, Speransky's strange and logical turn of mind inspired him with respect all the more because he did not quite understand him. Moreover, Speransky, either because he appreciated the other's capacity, or because he considered it necessary to win him to his side, showed off his dispassionate calm reasonableness before Prince Andrew, and flattered him with that subtle flattery which goes hand in hand with self-assurance, and consists in a tacit assumption that one's companion is the only man besides oneself capable of understanding the folly of the rest of mankind, and the reasonableness and profundity of one's own ideas. During their long conversation on Wednesday evening, Speransky more than once remarked, we regard everything that is above the common level of rooted custom, or with a smile, but we want the wolves to be fed and the sheep to be safe, or they cannot understand this, and all in a way that seemed to say, we, you and I, understand what they are and who we are. This first long conversation with Speransky only strengthened in Prince Andrew the feeling he had experienced toward him at their first meeting. He saw in him a remarkable, clear-thinking man of vast intellect, who by his energy and persistence had attained power, which he was using solely for the welfare of Russia. In Prince Andrew's eyes Speransky was the man he would himself have wished to be, one who explained all the facts of life reasonably, considered important only what was rational, and was capable of applying the standard of reason to everything. Everything seemed so simple and clear in Speransky's exposition that Prince Andrew involuntarily agreed with him about everything. If he replied and argued, it was only because he wished to maintain his independence and not submit to Speransky's opinions entirely. Everything was right, and everything was as it should be. Only one thing disconcerted Prince Andrew. This was Speransky's cold, mirror-like look, which did not allow one to penetrate to his soul, and his delicate white hands, 
which Prince Andrew involuntarily watched as one does watch the hands of those who possess power. This mirror-like gaze and those delicate hands irritated Prince Andrew, he knew not why. He was unpleasantly struck, too, by the excessive contempt for others that he observed in Speransky, and by the diversity of lines of argument he used to support his opinions. He made use of every kind of mental device, except analogy, and passed too boldly, it seemed to Prince Andrew, from one to another. Now he would take up the position of a practical man and condemn dreamers, now that of a satirist and laugh ironically at his opponents, now grow severely logical, or suddenly rise to the realm of metaphysics. This last resource was one he very frequently employed. He would transfer a question to metaphysical heights, pass on to definitions of space, time, and thought, and having deduced the refutation he needed, would again descend to the level of the original discussion. In general, the trait of Speransky's mentality which struck Prince Andrew most was his absolute and unshakable belief in the power and authority of reason. It was evident that the thought could never occur to him which to Prince Andrew seemed so natural, namely, that it is after all impossible to express all one thinks, and that he had never felt the doubt, is not all I think and believe nonsense? And it was just this peculiarity of Speransky's mind that particularly attracted Prince Andrew. During the first period of their acquaintance, Bolkonsky felt a passionate admiration for him, similar to that which he had once felt for Bonaparte. The fact that Speransky was the son of a village priest, and that stupid people might meanly despise him on account of his humble origin, as in fact many did, caused Prince Andrew to cherish his sentiment for him the more, and unconsciously to strengthen it. On that first evening Bolkonsky spent with him, having mentioned the commission for the revision of the Code of Laws, Speransky told him sarcastically that the commission had existed for a hundred and fifty years, had cost millions, and had done nothing, except that Rosenkampf had stuck labels on the corresponding paragraphs of the different codes. "'And that is all the State has for the millions it has spent,' said he. "'We want to give the Senate new juridical powers, but we have no laws.' That is why it is a sin for men like you, Prince, not to serve in these times." Prince Andrew said that for that work an education in jurisprudence was needed which he did not possess. But nobody possesses it, so what would you have? It is a vicious circle from which we must break a way out. A week later Prince Andrew was a member of the Committee on Army Regulations, and, what he had not at all expected, was chairman of a section of the Committee for the Revision of Laws. At Speransky's request, he took the first part of the civil code that was being drawn up, and with the aid of the Code Napoleon and the Institutes of Justinian, he worked at formulating the section on personal rights. End of Book Six, Chapter Six Book Six, Chapter Seven, of War and Peace, Volume Two, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Six, Chapter Seven. Nearly two years before this, in 1808, Pierre, on returning to Petersburg after visiting his estates, 
had involuntarily found himself in a leading position among the Petersburg Freemasons. He arranged dining and funeral lodge meetings, enrolled new members, and busied himself uniting various lodges and acquiring authentic charters. He gave money for the erection of temples, and supplemented as far as he could the collection of alms, in regard to which the majority of members were stingy and irregular. He supported almost single-handed a poorhouse the order had founded in Petersburg. His life, meanwhile, continued as before, with the same infatuations and dissipations. He liked to dine and drink well, and though he considered it immoral and humiliating, could not resist the temptations of the bachelor circles in which he moved. Amid the turmoil of his activities and distractions, however, Pierre at the end of a year began to feel that the more firmly he tried to rest upon it, the more Masonic ground on which he stood gave way under him. At the same time he felt that the deeper the ground sank under him, the closer bound he involuntarily became to the order. When he had joined the Freemasons, he had experienced the feeling of one who confidently steps onto the smooth surface of a bog. When he put his foot down, it sank in. To make quite sure of the firmness of the ground, he put his other foot down, and sank deeper still, became stuck in it, and involuntarily waded knee-deep in the bog. Joseph Alexeyevich was not in Petersburg. He had of late stood aside from the affairs of the Petersburg lodges, and lived almost entirely in Moscow. All the members of the lodges were men Pierre knew in ordinary life, and it was difficult for him to regard them merely as brothers in Freemasonry, and not as Prince B. or Ivan Vasilievich D., whom he knew in society mostly as weak and insignificant men. Under the Masonic aprons and insignia, he saw the uniforms and decorations at which they aimed in ordinary life. Often after collecting alms, and reckoning up twenty to thirty roubles received for the most part in promises from a dozen members, of whom half were as well able to pay as himself, Pierre remembered the Masonic vow in which each brother promised to devote all his belongings to his neighbor, and doubts on which he tried not to dwell arose in his soul. He divided the brothers he knew into four categories. In the first he put those who did not take an active part in the affairs of the lodges or in human affairs, but were exclusively occupied with the mystical science of the order, with questions of the threefold designation of God, the three primordial elements, sulphur, mercury, and salt, or the meaning of the square and all the various figures of the Temple of Solomon. Pierre respected this class of brothers to which the elder ones chiefly belonged, including, Pierre thought, Joseph Alexeyevich himself, but he did not share their interests. His heart was not in the mystical aspect of Freemasonry. In the second category Pierre reckoned himself and others like him, seeking and vacillating, who had not yet found in Freemasonry a straight and comprehensible path, but hoped to do so. In the third category he included those brothers, the majority, who saw nothing in Freemasonry but the external forms and ceremonies, and prized the strict performance of these forms without troubling about their purport or significance. Such were Rolarsky and even the Grand Master of the Principal Lodge. Finally, to the fourth category also a great many brothers belonged, particularly those who had lately joined. These, according to Pierre's observations, were men who had no belief in anything, nor desire for anything, but joined the Freemasons merely to associate with the wealthy young brothers who were influential through their connections or rank, 
and of whom there were very many in the lodge. Pierre began to feel dissatisfied with what he was doing. Freemasonry, at any rate, as he saw it here, sometimes seemed to him based merely on externals. He did not think of doubting Freemasonry itself, but suspected that Russian masonry had taken a wrong path and deviated from its original principles. And so, toward the end of the year, he went abroad to be initiated into the higher secrets of the order. In the summer of 1809 Pierre returned to Petersburg. Our Freemasons knew from correspondence with those abroad that Bezukhov had obtained the confidence of many highly placed persons, had been initiated into many mysteries, had been raised to a higher grade, and was bringing back with him much that might conduce to the advantage of the Masonic cause in Russia. The Petersburg Freemasons all came to see him, tried to ingratiate themselves with him, and it seemed to them all that he was preparing something for them and concealing it. A solemn meeting of the Lodge of the Second Degree was convened, at which Pierre promised to communicate to the Petersburg brothers what he had to deliver to them from the highest leaders of their order. The meeting was a full one. After the usual ceremonies Pierre rose and began his address. "'Dear brothers,' he began, blushing and stammering, with a written speech in his hand, "'it is not sufficient to observe our mysteries in the seclusion of our lodge. We must act, act. We are drowsing, but we must act.' Pierre raised his notebook and began to read. "'For the dissemination of pure truth and to secure the triumph of virtue,' he read, "'we must cleanse men from prejudice, diffuse principles in harmony with the spirit of the times, undertake the education of the young, unite ourselves in indissoluble bonds with the wisest men, boldly yet prudently overcome superstitions, infidelity and folly, and form of those devoted to us a body linked together by unity of purpose and possessed of authority and power. To attain this end, we must secure a preponderance of virtue over vice, and must endeavour to secure that the honest man may, even in this world, receive a lasting reward for his virtue. But in these great endeavours we are gravely hampered by the political institutions of to-day. What is to be done in these circumstances? To favour revolutions, overthrow everything, repel force by force? No. We are very far from that. Every violent reform deserves censure, for it quite fails to remedy evil while men remain what they are, and also because wisdom needs no violence. The whole plan of our order should be based on the idea of preparing men of firmness and virtue bound together by unity of conviction, aiming at the punishment of vice and folly, and patronizing talent and virtue, raising worthy men from the dust and attaching them to our brotherhood. Only then will our order have the power unobtrusively to bind the hands of the protectors of disorder and to control them without their being aware of it. In a word, we must found a form of government holding universal sway, which should be diffused over the whole world without destroying the bonds of citizenship, and beside which all other governments can continue in their customary course and do everything except what impedes the great aim of our order which is to obtain for virtue the victory over vice. This aim was that of Christianity itself. 
It taught men to be wise and good and for their own benefit to follow the example and instruction of the best and wisest men. At that time, when everything was plunged in darkness, preaching alone was of course sufficient. The novelty of truth endowed her with special strength, but now we need much more powerful methods. It is now necessary that man, governed by his senses, should find in virtue a charm palpable to those senses. It is impossible to eradicate the passions, but we must strive to direct them to a noble aim, and it is therefore necessary that everyone should be able to satisfy his passions within the limits of virtue. Our order should provide means to that end. As soon as we have a certain number of worthy men in every state, each of them again training to others and all being closely united, everything will be possible for our order, which has already in secret accomplished much for the welfare of mankind." This speech not only made a strong impression, but created excitement in the lodge. The majority of the brothers, seeing in it dangerous signs of Illuminism, the Illuminati sought to substitute Republican for monarchical institutions, met it with a coldness that surprised Pierre. The Grand Master began answering him, and Pierre began developing his views with more and more warmth. It was long since there had been so stormy a meeting. Parties were formed, some accusing Pierre of Illuminism, others supporting him. At that meeting he was struck for the first time by the endless variety of men's minds, which prevents a truth from ever presenting itself identically to two persons. Even those members who seemed to be on his side understood him in their own way with limitations and alterations he could not agree to, as what he always wanted most was to convey his thought to others just as he himself understood it. At the end of the meeting the Grand Master with irony and ill-will reproved Bazukov for his vehemence, and said it was not love of virtue alone, but also a love of strife that had moved him in the dispute. Pierre did not answer him, and asked briefly whether his proposal would be accepted. He was told that it would not, and without waiting for the usual formalities he left the lodge and went home. End of Book Six Chapter 7 Book Six Chapter 8 Of War and Peace, Volume 2 By Leo Tolstoy Translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Six, Chapter Eight. Again, Pierre was overtaken by the depression he so dreaded. For three days after the delivery of his speech at the lodge, he lay on a sofa at home, receiving no one and going nowhere. It was just then that he received a letter from his wife, who implored him to see her telling him how grieved she was about him and how she wished to devote her whole life to him. At the end of the letter she informed him that in a few days she would return to Petersburg from abroad. Following this letter, one of the Masonic brothers, whom Pierre respected less than the others, forced his way in to see him, and turning the conversation upon Pierre's matrimonial affairs, by way of fraternal advice expressed the opinion that his severity to his wife was wrong and that he was neglecting one of the first rules of Freemasonry by not forgiving the penitent. At the same time his mother-in-law, Prince Vasily's wife, sent to him imploring him to come, if only for a few minutes, to discuss a most important matter. 
Pierre saw that there was a conspiracy against him, and that they wanted to reunite him with his wife, and in the mood he then was, this was not even unpleasant to him. Nothing mattered to him, nothing in life seemed to him of much importance, and under the influence of the depression that possessed him he valued neither his liberty nor his resolution to punish his wife. No one is right, and no one is to blame. So she too is not to blame, he thought. If he did not at once give his consent to a reunion with his wife, it was only because in his state of depression he did not feel able to take any step. Had his wife come to him, he would not have turned her away. Compared to what preoccupied him, was it not a matter of indifference whether he lived with his wife or not? Without replying either to his wife or his mother-in-law, Pierre late one night prepared for a journey and started from Moscow to see Joseph Alexeyevich. This is what he noted in his diary. Moscow, 17th November. I have just returned from my benefactor, and hasten to write down what I have experienced. Joseph Alexeyevich is living poorly, and has for three years been suffering from a painful disease of the bladder. No one has ever heard him utter a groan or a word of complaint. From morning till late at night, except when he eats his very plain food, he is working at science. He received me graciously and made me sit down on the bed on which he lay. I made the sign of the Knights of the East and of Jerusalem, and he responded in the same manner, asking me with a mild smile what I had learned and gained in the Prussian and Scottish lodges. I told him everything as best I could, and told him what I had proposed to our Petersburg lodge, of the bad reception I had encountered, and of my rupture with the brothers. Joseph Alexeyevich, having remained silent and thoughtful for a good while, told me his view of the matter, which at once lit up for me my whole past and the future path I should follow. He surprised me by asking whether I remembered the threefold aim of the order. One, the preservation and study of the mystery. Two, the purification and reformation of oneself for its reception. And three, the improvement of the human race by striving for such purification. Which is the principal aim of these three? Certainly, self-reformation and self-purification. Only to this aim can we always strive independently of circumstances. But at the same time, just this aim demands the greatest efforts of us. And so, led astray by pride, losing sight of this aim, we occupy ourselves either with the mystery which in our impurity we are unworthy to receive, or seek the reformation of the human race while ourselves setting an example of baseness and profligacy. Illuminism is not a pure doctrine, just because it is attracted by social activity and puffed up by pride. On this ground, Joseph Alexeyevich condemned my speech and my whole activity, and in the depth of my soul I agreed with him. Talking of my family affairs, he said to me, The chief duty of a true Mason, as I have told you, lies in perfecting himself. We often think that, by removing all the difficulties of our life, we shall more quickly reach our aim, but on the contrary, my dear sir, it is only in the midst of worldly cares that we can attain our three chief aims. One, self-knowledge, for man can only know himself by comparison. Two, self-perfecting, which can only be attained by conflict. And three, the attainment of the chief virtue, love of death. Only the vicissitudes of life can show us its vanity, 
and develop our innate love of death or of rebirth to a new life. These words are all the more remarkable because, in spite of his great physical sufferings, Joseph Alexeyevich is never weary of life, though he loves death, for which, in spite of the purity and loftiness of his inner man, he does not yet feel himself sufficiently prepared. My benefactor then explained to me fully the meaning of the great square of creation, and pointed out to me that the numbers three and seven are the basis of everything. He advised me not to avoid intercourse with the Petersburg brothers, but to take up only second-grade posts in the lodge, to try, while diverting the brothers from pride, to turn them toward the true path, self-knowledge, and self-perfecting. Besides this, he advised me for myself personally, above all, to keep a watch over myself, and to that end he gave me a notebook, the one I am now writing in, and in which I will in future note down all my actions. Petersburg, 23rd November I am again living with my wife. My mother-in-law came to me in tears, and said that Elaine was here, and that she implored me to hear her that she was innocent and unhappy at my desertion, and much more. I knew that if I once let myself see her, I should not have strength to go on refusing what she wanted. In my perplexity I did not know whose aid and advice to seek. Had my benefactor been here, he would have told me what to do. I went to my room and re-read Joseph Alexeyevich's letters, and recalled my conversations with him and deduce from it all that I ought not to refuse a supplicant, and ought to reach a helping hand to every one, especially to one so closely bound to me, and that I must bear my cross. But if I forgive her for the sake of doing right, then let union with her have only a spiritual aim. That is what I decided, and what I wrote to Joseph Alexeyevich. I told my wife that I begged her to forget the past, to forgive me whatever wrong I may have done her, and that I had nothing to forgive. It gave me joy to tell her this. She did not know how hard it was for me to see her again. I have settled on the upper floor of this big house, and am experiencing a happy feeling of regeneration. End of Book Six, Chapter Eight Book Six, Chapter Nine, of War and Peace, Volume Two, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Six, Chapter Nine. At that time, as always happens, the highest society that met at court and at the grand balls was divided into several circles, each with its own particular tone. The largest of these was the French circle of the Napoleonic alliance, the circle of Count Romyantsev and Kolinkor. In this group Hélène, as soon as she had settled in Petersburg with her husband, took a very prominent place. She was visited by the members of the French embassy, and by many belonging to that circle, and noted for their intellect and polished manners. Hélène had been at Erfurt during the famous meeting of the emperors, and had brought from there these connections with the Napoleonic notabilities. At Erfurt her success had been brilliant. Napoleon himself had noticed her in the theatre, and said of her, C'est un superbe animal. That's a superb animal. 
Her success as a beautiful and elegant woman did not surprise Pierre, for she had become even handsomer than before. What did surprise him was that during these last two years his wife had succeeded in gaining the reputation d'une femme charmante aussi spirituelle que belle, of a charming woman as witty as she is lovely. The distinguished Prince de Ligne wrote her eight-page letters. Belieben saved up his epigrams to produce them in Countess Bezukhova's presence. To be received in the Countess Bezukhova's salon was regarded as a diploma of intellect. Young men read books before attending Elaine's evenings, to have something to say in her salon, and secretaries of the embassy and even ambassadors confided diplomatic secrets to her, so that in a way Elaine was a power. Pierre, who knew she was very stupid, sometimes attended, with a strange feeling of perplexity and fear, her evenings and dinner-parties where politics, poetry, and philosophy were discussed. At these parties his feelings were like those of a conjurer who always expects his trick to be found out any moment. But whether because stupidity was just what was needed to run such a salon, or because those who were deceived found pleasure in the deception, at any rate it remained unexposed, and Elaine Bezukhova's reputation as a lovely and clever woman became so firmly established that she could say the emptiest and stupidest things, and everybody would go into raptures over every word of hers, and look for a profound meaning in it of which she herself had no conception. Pierre was just the husband needed for a brilliant society woman. He was that absent-minded crank, a grand seigneur husband who was in no one's way, and far from spoiling the high tone and general impression of the drawing-room, he served, by the contrast he presented to her, as an advantageous background to his elegant and tactful wife. Pierre, during the last two years, as a result of his continual absorption in abstract interests and his sincere contempt for all else, had acquired in his wife's circle, which did not interest him, that air of unconcern, indifference, and benevolence toward all, which cannot be acquired artificially, and therefore inspires involuntary respect. He entered his wife's drawing-room as one enters a theatre, was acquainted with everybody, equally pleased to see everyone, and equally indifferent to them all. Sometimes he joined in a conversation which interested him, and regardless of whether any gentlemen of the embassy were present or not, lispingly expressed his views, which were sometimes not at all in accord with the accepted tone of the moment. But the general opinion concerning the queer husband of the most distinguished woman in Petersburg was so well established that no one took his freak seriously. Among the many young men who frequented her house every day, Boris Drubetskoy, who had already achieved great success in the service, was the most intimate friend of the Bezukhov household since Elaine's return from Erfurt. Elaine spoke of him as Montpage, and treated him like a child. Her smile for him was the same as for everybody, but sometimes that smile made Pierre uncomfortable. Toward him Boris behaved with a particularly dignified and sad deference. This shade of deference also disturbed Pierre. He had suffered so painfully three years before from the mortification to which his wife had subjected him, that he now protected himself from the danger of its reputation, first by not being a husband to his wife, and secondly by not allowing himself to suspect. 
No, now that she has become a bluestocking, she has finally renounced her former infatuations," he told himself. There has never been an instance of a bluestocking being carried away by affairs of the heart. A statement which, though gathered from an unknown source, he believed implicitly. Yet, strange to say, Boris's presence in his wife's drawing-room, and he was almost always there, had a physical effect upon Pierre. It constricted his limbs and destroyed the unconsciousness and freedom of his movements. "'What a strange antipathy!' thought Pierre. "'Yet I used to like him very much.' In the eyes of the world Pierre was a great gentleman, the rather blind and absurd husband of a distinguished wife, a clever crank, who did nothing but harm nobody and was a first-rate, good-natured fellow. But a complex and difficult process of internal development was taking place all this time in Pierre's soul, revealing much to him and causing him many spiritual doubts and joys. End of Book Six, Chapter Nine. Book Six, Chapter Ten of War and Peace, Volume Two, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Six, Chapter Ten. Pierre went on with his diary, and this is what he wrote in it during that time. Twenty-fourth November. Got up at eight, read the scriptures, then went to my duties. By Joseph Alexeyevich's advice, Pierre had entered the service of the state and served on one of the committees. Returned home for dinner and dined alone. The Countess had many visitors I do not like. I ate and drank moderately, and after dinner copied out some passages for the brothers. In the evening I went down to the Countess and told a funny story about B, and only remembered that I ought not to have done so when everybody laughed loudly at it. I am going to bed with a happy and tranquil mind. Great God, help me to walk in Thy paths one, to conquer anger by calmness and deliberation, two, to vanquish lust by self-restraint and repulsion, three, to withdraw from worldliness, but not to avoid a. the service of the state, b. family duties, c. relations with my friends, and the management of my affairs. 27th November I got up late. On waking I lay long in bed yielding to sloth. O oh God, help and strengthen me that I may walk in Thy ways. Read the scriptures, but without proper feeling. Brother Yurusov came and we talked about worldly vanities. He told me of the Emperor's new projects. I began to criticize them, but remembered my rules and my benefactor's words that a true Freemason should be a zealous worker for the State when his aid is required, and a quiet onlooker when not called on to assist. My tongue is my enemy. Brothers G, V, and O visited me, and we had a preliminary talk about the reception of a new brother. They laid on me the duty of a redder. I feel myself weak and unworthy. Then our talk turned to the interpretation of the seven pillars and steps of the temple, the seven sciences, the seven virtues, the seven vices, and the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. Brother O was very eloquent. In the evening the admission took place. 
the new decoration of the premises contributed much to the magnificence of the spectacle. It was Boris Drubetskoy who was admitted. I nominated him and was the redder. A strange feeling agitated me all the time I was alone with him in the dark chamber. I caught myself harboring a feeling of hatred toward him, which I vainly tried to overcome. That is why I should really like to save him from evil and lead him into the path of truth, but evil thoughts of him did not leave me. It seemed to me that his object in entering the Brotherhood was merely to be intimate and in favor with members of our lodge. Apart from the fact that he had asked me several times whether N and S were members of our lodge, a question to which I could not reply, and that, according to my observation, he is incapable of feeling respect for our holy order, and is too preoccupied and satisfied with the outer man to desire spiritual improvement, I had no cause to doubt him. But he seemed to me insincere, and all the time I stood alone with him in the dark temple it seemed to me that he was smiling contemptuously at my words, and I wished really to stab his bare breast with the sword I held to it. I could not be eloquent nor could I frankly mention my doubts to the brothers and to the Grand Master. Great architect of nature, help me to find the true path out of the labyrinth of lies." After this three pages were left blank in the diary, and then the following was written. I have had a long and instructive talk alone with Brother V, who advised me to hold fast by Brother A. Though I am unworthy, much was revealed to me. Adonai is the name of the Creator of the world. Elohim is the name of the Ruler of all. The third name is the name unutterable which means the All. Talks with Brother V strengthen, refresh, and support me in the path of virtue. In his presence doubt has no place. The distinction between the poor teachings of mundane science and our sacred all-embracing teaching is clear to me. Human sciences dissect everything to comprehend it, and kill everything to examine it. In the holy science of our order all is one, all is known in its entirety and life. The trinity, the three elements of matter, are sulphur, mercury, and salt. Sulphur is of an oily and fiery nature. In combination with salt, by its fiery nature, it arouses a desire in the latter by means of which it attracts mercury, seizes it, holds it, and in combination produces other bodies. Mercury is a fluid, volatile, spiritual essence. Christ, the Holy Spirit, Him. 3rd December Awoke late, read the scriptures, but was apathetic. Afterwards went and paced up and down the large hall. I wished to meditate, but instead my imagination pictured an occurrence of four years ago, when Dolokhov, meeting me in Moscow after our duel, said he hoped I was enjoying perfect peace of mind in spite of my wife's absence. At the time I gave no answer. Now I recalled every detail of that meeting, and in my mind gave him the most malevolent and bitter replies. I recollected myself and drove away that thought only when I found myself glowing with anger, but I did not sufficiently repent. Afterwards, Boris Drubetskoy came and began relating various adventures. His coming vexed me from the first, and I said something disagreeable to him. He replied. I flared up and said much that was unpleasant and even rude to him. 
He became silent, and I recollected myself only when it was too late. My God, I cannot get on with him at all. The cause of this is my egotism. I set myself above him, and so become much worse than he, for he is lenient to my rudeness, while I, on the contrary, nourish contempt for him. O oh God, grant that in his presence I may rather see my own vileness, and behave so that he too may benefit. After dinner I fell asleep, and as I was drowsing off, I clearly heard a voice saying in my left ear, Thy day. I dreamed that I was walking in the dark, and was suddenly surrounded by dogs, but I went on undismayed. Suddenly a smallish dog seized my left thigh with its teeth and would not let go. I began to throttle it with my hands. Scarcely had I torn it off before another bigger one began biting me. I lifted it up, but the higher I lifted it, the bigger and heavier it grew. And suddenly Brother A came, and taking my arm, led me to a building, to enter which we had to pass along a narrow plank. I stepped on it, but it bent and gave way, and I began to clamber up a fence which I could scarcely reach with my hands. After much effort I dragged myself up, so that my leg hung down on one side and my body on the other. I looked round and saw Brother A standing on the fence and pointing me to a broad avenue and garden, and in the garden was a large and beautiful building. I woke up. O oh Lord, great architect of nature, help me to tear from myself these dogs, my passions, especially the last, which unites in itself the strength of all the former ones and aid me to enter that temple of virtue to a vision of which I attained in my dream. 7th December I dreamed that Joseph Alexeyevich was sitting in my house, and that I was very glad and wished to entertain him. It seemed as if I chattered incessantly with other people and suddenly remembered that this could not please him, and I wished to come close to him and embrace him. But as soon as I drew near, I saw that his face had changed and grown young, and he was quietly telling me something about the teaching of our order, but so softly that I could not hear it. Then it seemed that we all left the room and something strange happened. We were sitting or lying on the floor. He was telling me something, and I wished to show him my sensibility, and not listening to what he was saying, I began picturing to myself the condition of my inner man and the grace of God sanctifying me. And tears came into my eyes, and I was glad he noticed this. But he looked at me with vexation and jumped up, breaking off his remarks. I felt abashed, and asked whether what he had been saying did not concern me. But he did not reply, gave me a kind look, and then we suddenly found ourselves in my bedroom where there is a double bed. He lay down on the edge of it, and I burned with longing to caress him and lie down too. And he said, Tell me frankly what is your chief temptation. Do you know it? I think you know it already. Abashed by this question, I replied that sloth was my chief temptation. He shook his head incredulously, and even more abashed, I said that, though I was living with my wife as he advised, I was not living with her as her husband. To this he replied that one should not deprive a wife of one's embraces, and gave me to understand that that was my duty. But I replied that I should be ashamed to do it. 
and suddenly everything vanished. And I awoke, and found in my mind the text from the Gospel, The life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Joseph Alexeyevich's face had looked young and bright. That day I received a letter from my benefactor in which he wrote about conjugal duties. 9th December I had a dream from which I awoke with a throbbing heart. I saw that I was in Moscow in my house, in the big sitting-room, and Joseph Alexeyevich came in from the drawing-room. I seemed to know at once that the process of regeneration had already taken place in him, and I rushed to meet him. I embraced him and kissed his hands, and he said, "'Hast thou noticed that my face is different?' I looked at him, still holding him in my arms, and saw that his face was young, but that he had no hair on his head, and his features were quite changed. And I said, "'I should have known you had I met you by chance.' and I thought to myself, am I telling the truth? And suddenly I saw him lying like a dead body. Then he gradually recovered and went with me into my study carrying a large book of sheets of drawing-paper. I said, I drew that, and he answered by bowing his head. I opened the book, and on all the pages there were excellent drawings. And in my dream I knew that these drawings represented the love adventures of the soul with its beloved. And on its pages I saw a beautiful representation of a maiden in transparent garments and with a transparent body flying up to the clouds. And I seemed to know that this maiden was nothing else than a representation of the Song of Songs. And looking at those drawings, I dreamed I felt that I was doing wrong, but could not tear myself away from them. Lord, help me! My God, if thy forsaking me is thy doing, thy will be done. But if I am myself the cause, teach me what I should do. I shall perish of my debauchery if thou utterly desertest me. End of Book Six, Chapter Ten Book Six, Chapter Eleven of War and Peace, Volume Two, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Six, Chapter Eleven. The Rostovs' monetary affairs had not improved during the two years they had spent in the country, though Nicholas Rostov had kept firmly to his resolution and was still serving modestly in an obscure regiment, spending comparatively little. The way of life at Otradno, Matenka's management of affairs in particular, was such that the debts inevitably increased every year. The only resource obviously presenting itself to the old Count was to apply for an official post, so he had come to Petersburg to look for one, and also, as he said, to let the lassies enjoy themselves for the last time. Soon after their arrival in Petersburg, Berg proposed to Vera and was accepted. Though in Moscow the Rostovs belonged to the best society without themselves giving it a thought, yet in Petersburg their circle of acquaintances was a mixed and indefinite one. In Petersburg they were provincials, and the very people they had entertained in Moscow without inquiring to what set they belonged, here looked down on them. 
The Rostovs lived in the same hospitable way in Petersburg as in Moscow, and the most diverse people met at their suppers. Country neighbors from Atrodno, impoverished old squires and their daughters, Perinskaya, a maid of honor, Pierre Bezukhov, and the son of their district postmaster who had obtained a post in Petersburg. Among the men who very soon became frequent visitors at the Rostovs' house in Petersburg were Boris, Pierre, whom the Count had met in the street and dragged home with him, and Berg, who spent whole days at the Rostovs and paid the eldest daughter, Countess Vera, the attentions a young man pays when he intends to propose. Not in vain had Berg shown everybody his right hand wounded at Austerlitz, and held a perfectly unnecessary sword in his left. He narrated that episode so persistently and with so important an air that everyone believed in the merit and usefulness of his deed, and he had obtained two decorations for Austerlitz. In the Finnish war he also managed to distinguish himself. He had picked up the scrap of a grenade that had killed an aide-de-camp standing near the commander-in-chief, and had taken it to his commander. Just as he had done after Austerlitz, he related this occurrence at such length and so insistently that everyone again believed it had been necessary to do this, and he received two decorations for the Finnish war also. In 1809 he was a captain in the guards, wore medals, and held some special lucrative posts in Petersburg. Though some skeptics smiled when told of Berg's merits, it could not be denied that he was a painstaking and brave officer, on excellent terms with his superiors, and a moral young man with a brilliant career before him and an assured position in society. Four years before, meeting a German comrade in the stalls of a Moscow theatre, Berg had pointed out Vera Rostova to him and had said in German, Das soll mein Weib werden that girl shall be my wife, and from that moment had made up his mind to marry her. Now in Petersburg, having considered the Rostovs' position and his own, he decided that the time had come to propose. Berg's proposal was at first received with a perplexity that was not flattering to him. At first it seemed strange that the son of an obscure Livonian gentleman should propose marriage to a Countess Rostova. But Berg's chief characteristic was such a naive and good-natured egotism that the Rostovs involuntarily came to think it would be a good thing, since he himself was so firmly convinced that it was good, indeed excellent. Moreover, the Rostovs' affairs were seriously embarrassed, as the suitor could not but know. And above all, Vera was twenty-four, had been taken out everywhere, and though she was certainly good-looking and sensible, no one up to now had proposed to her. So they gave their consent. "'You see,' said Berg to his comrade, whom he called friend only because he knew that everyone has friends, "'you see, I have considered it all, and should not marry if I had not thought it all out, or if it were in any way unsuitable. But on the contrary, my papa and mamma are now provided for. I have arranged that rent for them in the Baltic provinces, and I can live in Petersburg on my pay.' and with her fortune and my good management we can get along nicely. I am not marrying for money. I consider that dishonorable. But a wife should bring her share and a husband his. I have my position in the service. She has connections and some means. In our times that is worth something, isn't it? But, above all, she is a handsome, estimable girl, 
and she loves me." Berg blushed and smiled. "'And I love her, because her character is sensible and very good. Now the other sister, though they are the same family, is quite different, an unpleasant character, and has not the same intelligence. She is so, you know, unpleasant. But my fiancé, well, you will be coming,' he was going to say, to dine, but changed his mind and said, to take tea with us. And quickly doubling up his tongue, he blew a small round ring of tobacco smoke, perfectly embodying his dream of happiness. After the first feeling of perplexity aroused in the parents by Berg's proposal, the holiday tone of joyousness usual at such times took possession of the family, but the rejoicing was external and insincere. In the family's feeling toward this wedding a certain awkwardness and constraint was evident, as if they were ashamed of not having loved Vera sufficiently, and of being so ready to get her off their hands. The old Count felt this most. He would probably have been unable to state the cause of his embarrassment, but it resulted from the state of his affairs. He did not know at all how much he had, what his debts amounted to, or what dowry he could give Vera. When his daughters were born, he had assigned to each of them, for her dowry, an estate with three hundred serfs. But one of these estates had already been sold, and the other was mortgaged and the interest so much in arrears that it would have to be sold, so that it was impossible to give it to Vera. Nor had he any money. Berg had already been engaged a month and only a week remained before the wedding but the Count had not yet decided in his own mind the question of the dowry, nor spoken to his wife about it. At one time the Count thought of giving her the Riazan estate, or of selling a forest. At another time of borrowing money on a note of hand. A few days before the wedding Berg entered the Count's study early one morning, and with a pleasant smile respectfully asked his future father-in-law to let him know what Vera's dowry would be. The Count was so disconcerted by this long-foreseen inquiry that without consideration he gave the first reply that came into his head. "'I like your being businesslike about it. I like it. You shall be satisfied.' And patting Berg on the shoulder he got up, wishing to end the conversation. But Berg, smiling pleasantly, explained that if he did not know for certain how much Vera would have and did not receive at least part of the dowry in advance, he would have to break matters off. Because, consider, Count, if I allowed myself to marry now without having definite means to maintain my wife, I should be acting badly." The conversation ended by the Count, who wished to be generous and to avoid further importunity, saying that he would give a note of hand for eighty thousand roubles. Berg smiled meekly, kissed the Count on the shoulder, and said that he was very grateful but that it was impossible for him to arrange his new life without receiving thirty thousand in ready money. "'Or at least twenty thousand, Count,' he added, "'and then a note of hand for only sixty thousand.' "'Yes, yes, all right,' said the Count hurriedly. "'Only, excuse me, my dear fellow, I'll give you twenty thousand and a note of hand for eighty thousand as well. Yes, yes, kiss me.'" End of Book Six, Chapter Eleven Book Six, Chapter Twelve, of War and Peace, Volume Two, 
by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Six, Chapter Twelve. Natasha was sixteen, and it was the year eighteen o nine the very year to which she had counted on her fingers with Boris after they had kissed four years ago. Since then she had not seen him. Before Sonia and her mother, if Boris happened to be mentioned, she spoke quite freely of that episode as of some childish, long-forgotten matter that was not worth mentioning. But in the secret depths of her soul the question whether her engagement to Boris was a jest or an important binding promise tormented her. Since Boris left Moscow in 1805 to join the army, he had not seen the Rostovs. He had been in Moscow several times, and had passed near Otradno, but had never been to see them. Sometimes it occurred to Natasha that he did not wish to see her, and this conjecture was confirmed by the sad tone in which her elders spoke of him. "'Nowadays old friends are not remembered,' the Countess would say when Boris was mentioned. Anna Mikhailovna also had of late visited them less frequently, seemed to hold herself with particular dignity, and always spoke rapturously and gratefully of the merits of her son and the brilliant career on which he had entered. When the Rostovs came to Petersburg, Boris called on them. He drove to their house in some agitation. The memory of Natasha was his most poetic recollection but he went with the firm intention of letting her and her parents feel that the childish relations between himself and Natasha could not be binding either on her or on him. He had a brilliant position in society thanks to his intimacy with Countess Bezukhova, a brilliant position in the service thanks to the patronage of an important personage whose complete confidence he enjoyed, and he was beginning to make plans for marrying one of the richest heiresses in Petersburg plans which might very easily be realized. When he entered the Rostovs' drawing-room, Natasha was in her own room. When she heard of his arrival she almost ran into the drawing-room, flushed and beaming with a more than cordial smile. Boris remembered Natasha in a short dress, with dark eyes shining from under her curls and boisterous childish laughter, as he had known her four years before. And so he was taken aback when quite a different Natasha entered and his face expressed rapturous astonishment. This expression on his face pleased Natasha. "'Well, do you recognize your little madcap playmate?' asked the Countess. Boris kissed Natasha's hand and said that he was astonished at the change in her. "'How handsome you have grown!' "'I should think so,' replied Natasha's laughing eyes. "'And is Papa older?' she asked. Natasha sat down and without joining in Boris's conversation with the Countess, silently and minutely studied her childhood suitor. He felt the weight of that resolute and affectionate scrutiny and glanced at her occasionally. Boris's uniform, spurs, tie, and the way his hair was brushed were all comme faux and in the latest fashion. This Natasha noticed at once. He sat rather sideways in the armchair next to the Countess arranging with his right hand the cleanest of gloves that fitted his left hand like a skin, and he spoke with a particularly refined compression of his lips about the amusements of the highest Petersburg society, recalling with mild irony old times in Moscow and Moscow acquaintances. It was not accidentally, Natasha felt, that he alluded, when speaking of the highest aristocracy, to an ambassador's ball he had attended, and to invitations he had received from N.N. and S.S., 
All this time Natasha sat silent, glancing up at him from under her brows. This gaze disturbed and confused Boris more and more. He looked round more frequently toward her and broke off in what he was saying. He did not stay more than ten minutes, then rose and took his leave. The same inquisitive, challenging, and rather mocking eyes still looked at him. After his first visit, Boris said to himself that Natasha attracted him just as much as ever, but that he must not yield to that feeling, because to marry her, a girl almost without fortune, would mean ruin to his career, while to renew their former relations without intending to marry her would be dishonorable. Boris made up his mind to avoid meeting Natasha, but despite that resolution he called again a few days later, and began calling often and spending whole days at the Rostovs. It seemed to him that he ought to have an explanation with Natasha and tell her that the old times must be forgotten, that in spite of everything she could not be his wife, that he had no means and they would never let her marry him. But he failed to do so and felt awkward about entering on such an explanation. From day to day he became more and more entangled. It seemed to her mother and Sonia that Natasha was in love with Boris as of old. She sang him his favorite songs, showed him her album, making him write in it, did not allow him to allude to the past, letting it be understood how delightful was the present. And every day he went away in a fog, without having said what he meant to, and not knowing what he was doing, or why he came, or how it would all end. He left off visiting Elaine, and received reproachful notes from her every day, and yet he continued to spend whole days with the Rostovs. End of Book Six, Chapter Twelve. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo Fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun—yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just six dollars. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba da ba ba ba. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons, or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.